How often are you just quiet? How often in your life do you have opportunity just to sit and listen? We've got to live in the loudest time in all history. I mean, this is a time where the beats and the buzzes and the noises and the constancy of life never stops. If we didn't sleep, if we didn't have to sleep at night, <laughs> it would just be nonstop buzz. I don't know if I've shared this with you, but uh, times at night watching a movie with my daughter and my wife and the cell phones, the text messages, beep, beep, you know, man, can you just turn turn that off? You know, there's this this constancy of, of noise, and I really think just Rick talking here, but I really think it's one of Satan's greatest tools in the world today is noise. It's noise and distraction and and all these things that that keep us from settling down. And listening. And people ask the question, how do I hear God? Well, it's, it's hard to hear God in such a noisy world. It really takes that moment where you cease striving. He says, Psalm 46.10, Cease striving and know that I am God. I'll talk about this a little bit more this morning, but I'd like to begin right at the beginning of 2 Chronicles 14. We do something we usually do on a, often do on a Wednesday night, don't often do on a Sunday morning. We're going to cover two chapters today. But it's one story, and it's far more than a story. Its relevance to us, its importance to us, I believe, is, is huge. Second Chronicles chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. We're still tracking now down the line of the kings of Judah. Israel is in the north, separate kingdom, the kingdom divided. And we begin with verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers. And they buried him in the city of David. And his son, Asa, became king in his place. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his reign. Asa did what did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was undisturbed under him. He built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed. And there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him. And he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. Rest on every side. Lord Jesus, what a great idea. That we might have rest on every side. A land undisturbed. Peace and quiet in our hearts. Such that, Lord, we could hear you. That we could recognize, as King Asa did, that the peace and the joy and the life that we have is because of you. And not because of our striving and not because of our noisy banging around the house trying to get it done. Oh Lord Jesus, we pray for your rest and your quiet to descend on our hearts. And in so doing, we pray that we would find salvation there. 
and repentance unto salvation and strength and trust. And pray that, Lord, even as we consider the history of Asa this morning, that we would be moved to walk in a similar way by the Spirit of our God. And Holy Spirit, would You take us a step further this morning into the spiritual and away from the physical. By Your supernatural power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. (coughs) King Asa. He was the fourth king to rule, now in the line of Judah from David. You have David, you have Solomon, you have Rehoboam, you had Abijah, and now you have King Asa. You could say, let's see, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah. So I guess you could say he's the fifth king, isn't he? But he's the fourth king since the split. And we see this come along. Asa, his father was Abijah, who was a very faithless king. There's one great moment of faith we talked about on Wednesday night. You can read about it in chapter 13. But it was more the faith of the people of Judah than it was the faith of King Abijah. He was one who followed after Rehoboam and one of the not-so-good kings in the line of Judah. But Asa is one of the good ones. So I'm happy to present to you this morning a good king of Judah, which is a surprise as we go through this. There are only a handful in the line. Of course, in Israel, you know it's worse. It's not a single good king in the entire batch up north. But under Assad's leadership, the kingdom of Judah enjoyed revival. Five times in the kingdom of Judah, the people would be revived. The land would be healed. There would be rescue and peace. They would be undisturbed on every side. Five times, revival. And as we talked about a few Wednesdays back, revival is the key word of Second Chronicles. I was sharing with a friend just last night how I, one of the things I enjoy so much about coming to new books and studying in, in the Word is it shatters my perception of what's in that book. It shatters my perception of what's coming. The thing I shared with you back when we began in Genesis, I was very excited to do Genesis and Exodus, not so much about Leviticus. I was a little worried about that one until we got there and my perception was blown away. Numbers was great. Deuteronomy, I thought, okay, this is going to be a boring repeat. Not so. A prophetic book of incredible significance. And as we've gone along, I, I was fine, but coming to First and Second Chronicles, I thought, okay, you know, here we go again. We've done First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, so the whole thing's just going to be a quick repeat. And I determined to move as quickly through it as possible, only to discover how unique. First and Second Chronicles truly is. Second Chronicles is unique in that we have pointed out before us the revivals of Judah. We see things in Second Chronicles we have not seen before. We learn now about revival. What does revival look like? What exactly is revival? Now we all bring different traditions to the table this morning. Different ideas. If I just speak the word revival, some of you have a very clear picture of what that looks like. Others are frightened by it. But for all of us, we can go to the Word and see what revival is. What does it mean? What is the purpose of it? And Judah comes into a time of great revival under King Asa. I will caution you, revival may not look like what you think from either perspective. Revival actually has more to do, I believe, and we see this under Asa, with the Hebrew word shakat. Shakat. Now, here's an easy way to remember shakat. The word means, in the Hebrew, quiet. So just think shakat. You know you can do that in any language and people will settle down? I love that. 
It's that sound to it. You know, it's not but shakat, quiet. For most of us, when we were teenagers, well, many of us, the louder the better. Perhaps you recall those days. I do. As loud as possible, that was life to me. If I could turn up the volume, rattle the windows, shake the walls, it was all good. I'm coming up on 45, and I've traded in my Zeppelin for my Tomlin. (laughs) On occasion, I still listen to Zeppelin, but that's a different thing. More often than not these days, my kids will tell you that silence is music to my ears. When we all pile into the Suburban together, all eight of us, as we got to do yesterday, and we're driving down the road, and the kids are clamoring, turn on the music, turn on the music. Cheryl and I are like, no, it's loud enough. We love the silence, the shakat, the quiet. And for all who wonder how a person really finds God, it is not in the rattle and the ruckus of religion. It is in the quiet of relationship. You ever gone out with friends and before you even go to the restaurant you stop and say, now wait, before we decide where to eat we need to find a place that isn't noisy because we really want to talk and get to know each other a little better. You ever pick a restaurant based on that? I have several times. There are places to go. If you, if you really don't want to be in conversation, you know, head over to, I don't know, uh, Applebee's or something because you won't hear each other. Not that I'm anti-Applebee's. Although, you know, isn't our food mostly just microwaved? Anyway, I don't know. Okay, I... Sorry. For all of us who get caught up in the clamor and the commotion of churchianity, that is when we get out of relationship and into the religious life, the Lord has this to say. Isaiah thirty fifteen. I hope you've heard it before. In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Would you re- repeat that after me? Let me say a line. You repeat it. And and let's personalize it. In repentance and rest, I will be saved. In quietness and trust is my strength. Now one more time. Close your eyes. Repeat after me. And say it with your heart. In repentance and rest, I will be saved. In quietness and trust is my strength. Doesn't that feel better? But Rick, what does this have to do with revival? And the answer is everything. Everything. And this is something that kind of shook my perception because to me, even the word revival, to revive, to bring to life, is about excitement and and enthusiasm and noise and rejoicing and, and all that that would come with revival. But not with King Asah. No, the key word is shakat. Quiet. Peace. In the opening six verses of of chapter 14, we see this word quiet applied three times. You might say, well, where? I don't see it. Verse 1. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his reign. Shakat. Quiet. The land was quiet. We see it again here in the end of verse 5. The kingdom was shakat under him. We see it in verse 6. The land was shakat. And there was no one at war with him. Quiet. The outcome, the picture of revival, the revival that happens under King Asa is quiet and peace. And we know where the Spirit of the Lord is. There is peace and quiet. I like that. Again, we, 
We see a nation here, Judah, that is bogged down with the cacophony of war and the confusion of idolatry, very much like America today. And Asa comes along and he cultivates a quiet revival. Have you ever stood in the middle of a field, maybe you've gone out to the Skagit Valley before the tulips pop up. Have you ever stood there and listened to them as they germinate and grow underground? have trouble hearing anything because the growth is silent it's buried it's behind the scenes and even as it comes up out of the ground you don't hear you know it's, it's, it's just suddenly there one day now once it's there and the colors are all over you hear a lot of noise don't you get out of the way I'm here to see the colors man you know people going up and down and the busyness and, and for those of us who are locals we cannot wait until everybody's gone. You know, one of my favorite things about the fall around here, and Billy, you and I have commiserated about this, it's I love when the traffic stops. When people stop crossing that bridge. Isn't it hilarious? I mean, the bridge is beautiful. You know, the, the whole scenery is gorgeous. But people will drive for miles to see it. I cross it every day. I praise God for it, but it's like, dude, it's a bridge. <laughs> it goes across water. I don't know what the draw is. Gang, when you, when you listen... When you listen to the planting and you listen to the germination and you listen to the growth, what you discover is quiet. It begins quiet. It ends quiet. It's the same thing with revival. It doesn't crop up suddenly and instantaneously and noisily. If we were able to see spiritually how revival is born, it begins quietly. And its ultimate outcome is quietness and trust and rest and peace. Now there's a lot that happens in the middle of that. But from start to finish, the key word is shakat. Quiet. As we consider King Asa's quiet revival, I want us to take a look at four common elements of revival this morning. And this is kind of an outline for us to follow through these chapters. The first element is the soil of revival. The soil. Second is the seed. The third is the cultivation. And number four is the harvest. The seed, sorry, the soil, the seed, the cultivation, and the harvest. So part one, the soil of revival. As we see in the opening verses, and the first few verses give us an overview, that the land would be undisturbed during the reign of Asa. We see what he did that brought this about in, in quick a snapshot about tearing down the altars and the high places and tearing down uh, the, the Asherim, which are the Asherah poles to the, to the goddess Asherah. And by the way, when you see high places in Scripture, do you know what that is? These are, these are literally high places, but they were groves of trees surrounding an open place somewhere in, in places throughout the land that people could go to practice their idolatry and to practice horrible things. Usually, sexual things. Hidden things that you wouldn't do you know, in the common market or out in the street or where people could see, but you would sneak off to do these things as part of your idol worship. The biggest problem in Judah throughout all of the kings until we get to Josiah, even with Asa, he doesn't tear down all the high places. There's still those hidden places. And just remember that as we see, as we go forward, especially over the next several weeks, that the high places are these groves of trees where people went in secret to experience their idol worship. Now, the first decade we know of Asa's reign saw no war. It was a great time to prepare the soil. God gave him peace and quiet to begin with. And for a decade, no attacks came. But then, an attack does come. 
Well, why? Did they do something wrong? No, this is still part of soil preparation, the soil of revival. Look at verse 8. Now Esau had an army of 300,000 from Judah bearing large shields and spears and 280,000 from Benjamin. So he has over half a million men in his army. It's a good size. They're bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Verse 9. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. And he came to Marashah. So Esau went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zarephathah at Marashah. And then Esau called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you. And in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. It's a great prayer of Esau in this moment. As they come up, 580,000 against a million plus. They are vastly outnumbered and overwhelmed. But gang, listen to me on this. Every revival, since the very beginning of time, every revival begins and has begun in the soil of faith. It starts there. Quietly. The soil of faith. If the soil of the heart is not characterized by faith, that is a real belief that God can move and will move. The seed of revival, which we'll get to in a moment, cannot grow. The soil is bad. For revival to come, the soil has to be prepared and the soil must be a soil of faith. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Do you believe that about God? Many people believe there's something out there. Do you believe that He is? And do you believe there is something good in seeking Him? There is blessing. There is reward in coming to Him. John writes in 1 John 5.4, Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And when, when I say faith, I'm not talking about flimsy religion. I'm not talking about religious ritual that, that has the, all the appearance of faith, but is not truly faith. I'm talking about a belief that God truly is in control, really can save you, really does shield you, really does know what He's doing. Do you believe that about God? At your worst, do you, like a saw, cry out and say, God, you're the only God. You're the only one in control here. It's not me. I need you to protect me. Do you believe He can save? Psalm 3.6, I love this psalm. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. David wrote that. Why would he write that? Because he believed. He had faith. And it didn't matter how large the army was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how insurmountable the problem may be. Do you believe that He is God and He will make a way? And He will shield His people. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Which means you're not. Which means we don't have to be so defensive as people. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp around me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. That's faith. Bring on the ten thousands. 
I can handle it. Well, I can't. But God, who goes before me, is my God. And He can. Let me rabbit trail here for a second. I don't know about you, but ironically, I have no problem standing against the multitudes. I can take on in in prayer, I can stand up in faith against the 10,000, against the demonic hordes of hell, no problem, because I know Jesus is. And I know Jesus rules and reigns. And so, bring on the big challenge, man. I'm ready to go. You know what rips me apart? It's not the voice of 10,000, it's the voice of one. Maybe you're like this in your life. You can stand strong against all that's coming at you in the Lord and trust that He can handle it. But one person says a cruel or negative word and it shatters you. They really said that? I can't believe that. How would they be? You know what's worse? Is when the one voice, when the one person is a brother or sister in Christ. That hurts. That's hard. That is difficult. I mention this because I believe this is the one thing that can undermine an individual's faith almost uh, almost more than any great army, and that's gossip. I think the Lord is so anti-gossip in church fellowships because it is gossip that breaks faith. It is gossip that causes people to leave the fellowship. It's gossip that hurts and stings and destroys One person, one word. Oh, bring on the 10,000. I've got them now. Come on, Lord, let's go. You know, I think about the end times and the world in which we live, and I'm ready to go. Man, let's march on Washington. Let's do whatever we have to do. Let's march on the world in the name of Jesus Christ, our shield, our Savior. Bring them on. But one person in a fellowship of Christians says something negative about Pastor Rick. I know it's a shock, but they do. And it throws you back on your heels. Gang, we can't stand against the world if we're busy ripping on each other. It can't happen. Revival will never come if a fellowship of people are too busy talking about each other instead of just trusting the Lord. Proverbs 18, verse 6 tells us, A fool's lips bring strife, and his mouth calls for blows. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. You know, there's the word shakat. There's also the word shut up, <laughs> which the fool doesn't get. The fool doesn't understand this word. <laughs> the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. Listen to this. They go down into the innermost parts of the body. And I believe that happens when gossip hits in the body of Christ. These dainty morsels of gossip, these tidbits of information, go down into the innermost parts of the body and they spoil there. And they hurt. And they undermine. And the soil of faith has trouble being as rich as it can and should be. Let me just say, if you've spoken anything against a brother or a sister in Christ, whether it's someone here this morning or someone in this fellowship or someone in another fellowship, if you've ever spoken or if you've recently spoken against a brother or sister in Christ, repent. Because it's not what we're called to be about. We're called to love each other. Well, I don't understand why he does... Okay, maybe you don't. Maybe instead of gossiping about him behind your back, you should go spend some time with him. Get to know 
why he makes the choices he does, why that family does what they do, why we live the way we do versus the way other people live. You know what? Let's take the time to understand rather than the time to point fingers and gossip. Proverbs 20.19 says, He who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Which is another good standard for us to have as a fellowship. If someone begins to gossip about another person, put your hand up. Well, that might offend them. I don't care. Put your hand up and say, look, let's just not talk about this. You know, If it's negative, if it casts a shadow, hey, if it's positive, bring it on. Talk about each other all you want. If you're building up, encouraging, and lifting up. You know what I heard Gary Kramer do the other day? Oh, I just love this. I've got to tell you about this. That's good stuff. It's the opposite of gossip. Which I don't even know what a word is for that, except for encouragement. Back to King Asaph. Sorry, I told you that was a rabbit trail. His prayer... His prayer is one of real faith. Here's a king who is facing a million. And whether you're facing a million or 10,000 or even just one, it's a great prayer to pray, Lord, there's no one besides you. You are my God. Let man not prevail against you. And so Asa's faith as a king is quietly instilled deep in the soil of his heart. We have a king now who believes. So revival can come. And as the king believes, so the people begin to believe and revival. The the soil is being prepared here in the life of Esau and in Judah. And that's where the seed quietly grows. Now, what happens when he cries out to the Lord? Verse 12, the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Esau and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Esau and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. So many Ethiopians fell, they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away very much plunder. They destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them. Not because the strength of Judah showed itself, but the dread of the Lord fell on them. And there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock. They carried away large numbers of sheep and cattle. And then they returned to Jerusalem. A great victory. And the soil of faith now is being cultivated. Soil of faith is ready. Part 2. The seed. The seed of revival. Verse 1. Chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet Esau and said to him, Listen to me, Esau, and all Judah and Benjamin... The Lord is with you when you are with Him. I really like that. <laughs> you want the Lord to be with you? Be with Him. That's when the Lord is with you. When you are with Him. It's not come be where I am. It's go be where He is. And the Lord will be with you. And if you seek Him, as Ryan now is prophesying, He's speaking by the Spirit. If you seek Him, He will let you find Him. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law, but in their distress they turned to the Lord God of Israel. They sought Him and, they let, and He let them find Him. In those times there was no peace to Him who went out or to Him who came in. For many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the land. You see the contrast. He is talking about a people who are not in faith, who are not in the Lord, and there's no peace. And there's no shakat. There's no quiet. They're disturbed and bothered and afflicted by all the inhabitants of the land. Verse 6, nation was crushed by nation and city by city. For God troubled them and with every kind of distress. But you, be strong, he says. Do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So Azariah the prophet comes along and he speaks. But the word is clear. The word is very clear. I love that, that the Spirit takes time to point out that it is the Spirit who came upon Azariah. 
So we know that this is just not a man talking. This is the Spirit of God breathing life into this man, speaking through him. And he begins to give this short history of Israel. Of why they lacked revival. Why they lost their passion. And the prophet compares the past to the present for King Asa and Judah. And if Asa had at all been discouraged by what he saw going on in Judah, the Spirit says through Azariah, be strong and do not lose courage. Some of you have waited an awful long time to see the Lord move in your life. I mean, you've really wanted, you've really desired, you've really hungered for revival. Let's just put the word on it. For God to really do something big. Remember what Gary Shepherd shared a couple weeks back when he was here? He was 17 years in Nepal. 17 years. And his massive number of converts amounted to one. Could you devote yourself to the Lord for 17 years to see one person saved? That's faith. That is faith and commitment. That's amazing to me. That's why the Spirit says, Take courage. Be strong. I'll work. I'll move. My timing is my timing. You, in the meantime, have faith and take courage. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes quiet for seeds of revival to grow. The seed has to be planted. Going back to the Skagit Valley and the tulips, the the bulb has to be in the ground. It takes a season. It takes time. The farmer who drops the bulb in the ground, covers it up, and says, okay, let's go, is missing the point. It takes time. The right seed and the right soil. Well, what is the seed of revival. If the soil is, is, is faith, if the soil is the heart and the heart of faith that, that is prepared, what truly is the seed of revival? Well, what was it that Israel lacked? Look back in verse 3. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. Without the true God, without a teaching priest, and literally Israel was without Torah. Often when you see the word law, it is in the Hebrew Torah. Without the true God. Well, first off, they were worshipping the wrong gods. They were not worshipping the true God. They had their idols, their false gods, who, by the way, cannot do a thing for you. That's the problem with idols. Not only do they distract from the real God, but they can't do what the real God, the true God, can do. Idols can do nothing. They're empty, hollow, carved images that will only leave you empty, hollow, and carved. Isaiah 46, verse 5, the Lord says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal or compare me that we would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. And they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it on the shoulder and they carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it. Can't answer It cannot deliver him from his distress. I remember Max Lucado years ago, I think it was one of the first books he ever wrote, talking about seeing the the great uh, idolatrous, really, statue to Jesus down in Rio de Janeiro. You've seen the picture, the big massive Jesus standing up on the hill, hands outreached. And Lucado described it, he said it was was huge and, and impressive until he got closer to it and he looked and the eyes were hollow. So here's this idol with eyes that cannot see. And he says, carved on the chest is a little, a little heart. It's actually carved on the chest of that large Jesus statue. A heart made of stone that cannot feel, eyes that cannot see, and hands that cannot reach out and help. An idol can do nothing for you. 
Perhaps the saddest thing about idols is they can't deliver. Well, good thing we don't have idols in our country. I mean, let's just be honest about this. Who or what do you put your faith in? That's your idol. What do you count on? What do you take comfort in? That's your idol. I, I wasn't sure if I could talk about this, Sean and Marilee. I, I went to uh, the funeral of Sean's dad on, on uh, Thursday, right? best part was, was the eulogy that Sean did. Um, and it, it was moving and it was very touching. But it was in the Catholic Church there in Anacortes. First time I've, I've been in that, in that church building. And I was struck. Honestly, some would disagree with me maybe. I, I was struck by how beautiful it was. I mean, ornate. That church, I mean, <laughs> when you look at that church and then you look around this barn, I mean, the contrast is stunning. So I'm sitting back there in the back and I'm looking at this and the priest in his robes and the, and the, 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 the idols or the icons of the, of the saints and, and, you know, you've got the, the Mary with the Jesus in the front and you've got Gabriel and Michael. I didn't know what they looked like until Thursday, so now I know. And all the, you know, the carvings. And I was impressed at the, at the, the artistry of it. But as I looked at it, I thought, you know, I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus. Because I'm so impressed by all of this visual. And by what all is going on around me. Now, if you have a Catholic background, I, I, I don't mean to offend, but, but we've got to deal with truth here. And there are those who come into that setting. And the priest, I'll tell you what, he's good. Vutran is his name. He is good at what he does. I was five minutes into that service and I was lulled, baby. <laughs> the voice was peaceful and gentle and not quite monotone, but really carried over. And there was just this sense of this ooh. And, and as I listened to all of this, I began thinking, I, I, whoa, no wonder, no wonder people will go and stay in that place. There's comfort there. There is known thing. Nothing, nothing out of the ordinary is going to happen. Everybody knows what to expect. And it's written out in the liturgy. And everything happens the way it's supposed to happen. And it's very clearly scripted and very smooth. And, and, and boy, about halfway through, I just went, I went, Jesus, I, I'm... You know when I saw, I saw Jesus when, when Sean started speaking? That was when I kind of got pulled out of the rest of this and pulled back just into reality because Sean and I have a great relationship. And so it was there in relationship that I realized that Jesus had a say in what was going on. Gang, your church traditions are an idol if you put your faith in them. Your church is an idol if you put your faith in it. If you show up at the gates of heaven someday and say, Lord, I went to the Bridge Christian Fellowship. He'll go, yeah. That's not what matters. Who do you know? Oh, I know Pastor Rick. Okay. He's a great guy, don't get me wrong, but... (laughs) But who else do you know? I know Jesus you're in. I know Jesus. Anything other than Jesus. There is only one true God. 1 John 5.20, let's be absolutely clear. We know the Son of God has come. He's given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. Did you get that? Jesus Christ 
is the true God and eternal life. How could a people, when we look at Israel, how could a people led by God Himself, miraculously out of Egypt, walking, following the the cloud by day, the Shekinah glory of God, the fire by night, led into the promised land ultimately, fed for 40 years prior to that, but then victoriously taking this land, and then protected by their God, and experiencing the things that they did. Solomon's temple, and the glory coming into the temple, and all the amazing things that these people saw, How could they end up without the true God? And it's very simple. Same way we do. They lost the seed. All you need is a few years without a teaching priest and without the Torah, Israel, and you will lose the true God. And that's what they lacked. That's the seed. What's the seed? Jesus said it, Luke 8.11, the seed is the Word of God. Now he was given the parable, the seed and the sower and the soils and all that, and talking about the seed that gets implanted on the different soils. The seed is the word. The seed must be sowed. It's the word that gets into the soil of faith that begins to germinate, yes, revival, ultimately. But you've got to have the seed first. You've got to have the seed involved. It germinates in the heart. It cultivates in life change. Undermine the word. Whitewash the teaching. And not only do you end up with all kinds of false representations and phony gods, but you have no seed for revival. 1 Peter 1.23 You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the enduring living Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. Now we may not sit in heaven with leather Bibles open having Bible study, but I'll tell you what, the Word endures forever. The Word will be there. And the more you know the Word today, when you're in heaven, the more familiar it is going to be throughout eternity. Because you're going to hear the Word again. You're going to hear the Word spoken. I believe in the heavenly places. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you, Jesus says, are spirit and life. Let me share this. Wednesday night we talked about this. Those of you who are here, you'll recall this. But sometimes we forget that the Word is the seed of the supernatural. Well, I want to see something happen supernaturally on a Wednesday night. Great, open the Bible. (laughs) Because every time we do, something supernatural is going on. It's not Rick's teaching. You hold in your hands, gang, something that touches on the supernatural of God. And without the Word, again, there is no seed for revival. I love this. J. J. Vernon McGee has this to say. He says, I am bold enough to state dogmatically that there has never been a revival without a return to the Word of God. Won't happen. Not true revival. There is no detour around the Bible. There is no substitute for it. We need more than just a superficial familiarity with the Word of God. We need more than an artificial vocabulary of all the right words. Now, I've heard people actually say, I used to be into Bible study, but I grew beyond it. Really? Wow, you must be something else. If you have now grasped all the truths and powerful concepts of the Lord God such that you don't need to open a Bible anymore, I'm impressed. Or maybe I should put it this way what a shame. What a shame. 
Man, if you want a heart that is alive in Christ Jesus, you need the seed. Oh, you can run a few years on old growth. In fact, that's what, that's what the Sabbath year was about. Every seventh year, Israel was to let the ground lie fallow. And they were to eat off of whatever grew on its own. And stuff will grow. If we don't do anything next year in the Skagit Valley, tulips are going to come up. They won't look as good as the year before when they were cultivated and prepared. But they'll come up. And a year after that, you'll still have some more come up. They're not going to be as nice as the year before. And down the line, eventually, they're going to stop growing. And, and the weeds are going to take over. Such is a life that says, I don't need the Word of God anymore. You may be able to run this year without it, or next year without it. But ultimately, Israel was without a teaching priest and without Torah. No wonder they got detoured from the true God. James chapter 1, verse 21 says, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, and that's what it takes, gang, in humility, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And once that word, that seed, is implanted in the soil of faith, gang, that's when the fun begins. Part 3, the cultivation of revival. Watch this, verse 8. Now when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah the son of Oded the prophet spoke, he took courage and removed all the abominable idols from the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country of Ephraim. Here's what you do. Here is how we get our hands messy. We roll up our sleeves and dig in the dirt. Here's how we are part of the cultivation process. Number one, you've got to remove all idols. If you want revival to come, you've got to remove the idols. And this is what he did. In fact, look back again at chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did good, or Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God. For he removed from the the foreign altars, high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. He He also removed the high places, the incense altars, from all the cities of Judah. And the land was undisturbed. Because the idols were gone. We have to begin by removing the idols. And that is, for you and me, tearing down anything that stands between you and Jesus Christ. So what is it? Was it what is it in my life, in, in your life, that gets between you and Je- that makes seeing Jesus difficult for you? It's interesting that in 1 John 5, verse 20, John declares Jesus as true God and eternal life. And the very next verse, the last verse of his little letter here, is little children, guard yourselves from idols. Why would he say that? Because an idol is going to keep you from seeing true God. An idol will block you from seeing Jesus as he really is. Because you will be looking to and through the idol. Tear it down. Anything that would distract, anything that would detour you from Jesus, tear it down. Any sinful thing that stunts the growth of righteousness, any belief system you have, any self-reliance, tear it down. Take it out. Skip down and look at verse 16. He also removed Maaka, the mother of King Asa, actually the grandmother. They use the word kind of interchangeably there. The mother of King Asa from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kedron. Well, that's interesting. Because some of the toughest idols for us to tear down are family idols. King Asa's grandmother, the queen mother, you know, highly respected by the people, had her own Asherim, her own idol. And so he has to depose her from her place first and then go take out her idol. 
Why are they so hard to tear down, these family idols? Because they're passed on from generation to generation to generation. And we get comfortable with them. We get accustomed to them. I'll never forget growing up in my, in my house, my mom had these two little uh, ceramic monkeys. She didn't pray to them. They were not idols. But they, little ceramic monkeys, someone had given, I think it was a wedding present or something. I'm not sure why two monkeys for my mom and dad. Maybe there was, I don't know, something I didn't know about their personalities. But, but I grew up with these two little ceramic monkeys. They were part of the furniture. They were part of my life. I can close my eyes and recall as a child walking into my parents' bedroom and seeing up on top of the bureau those two monkeys and the hair coming out. I mean, it's as vivid as life to me. It was part of the furniture. It's a picture game. What I'm trying to say is family idols are hard to take out because you're used to them. They've always been there. You know the old phrase, once a Catholic, always a Catholic? You know why? Because you're so accustomed to it. It's what you've always known. It's what we do every Christmas and Easter. It's, it's Mass. It's the way it's done. Everything is so well scripted. You're comfortable with it. You're used to it. Tear them down. Even the family idols. Well, I might offend a family member. Yes, you might. You think, uh, you think Mayaka was happy about being deposed as Queen Mother? You think she went quietly? <laughs> that was not a moment of shakat in Israel, I can guarantee you. What do you mean, deposing me? How dare you? I'm your grandmother. You can't talk to me. You know, I don't know how it went, but it couldn't have been easy. <laughs> Tear down. You know, friendship idols are tough. Not just family idols, friendship idols. Things that are handed from one person to another. And we accept those idols because we don't want to be offensive or judgmental. And so we quietly, we quietly tolerate a Christian friend's drunkenness. And that's okay. That's okay? Really? Well, yeah, because I, I don't want to say anything that's going to offend and drive them further away. They're drunk. They've made that choice. Friendship idols like gossip. Well, I, talk, I listen. I, I don't engage in it myself. I listen. Remember what the verse said? Don't even associate with the gossip. Immoral behavior. Well, I know that he's off doing that. He shouldn't. But, you know, but he's a brother in Christ. I don't want to be judgmental. Peter said it is now time for judgment to begin in the house of God. Do you realize there is a standard by which we can discern and judge one another in the church body? It's not pointing the finger of judgment. It is the love of judgment. God's judgment is loving, gang. He does judge. He does tell us, that's wrong behavior. That is not the way to go. That's incorrect. That will drive you from me. Ephesians 5.11 Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. This is how you tear down idols. It is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. Do you ever have whispered conversations of the sin of people around you? Do you know what I heard? You've got to hear this. Blah, 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 blah. And Paul would say, I don't even want to hear that. Paul says all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. What did John say? If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Hi, family. For this reason, Paul says, and don't miss this, because here is the key. Here is revival. For this reason, Ephesians 5.14, it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is revival. Reviving to life. You take the religion out of the Word. Revival is life. If we accept the deeds of darkness in a church fellowship, if we are okay 
if we wink the eye at sin or just kind of ignore the sin of brothers and sisters and accept it as, that's ah, cool because we're America, right? You know, we're the new cultural Christianity. Gang, eventually our eyes will become so accustomed to the dark when the light shines, we'll be blinded by it. We will not tolerate light because we're so comfortable with dark. Tear down the idols. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 says, Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Remove the idols. Secondly, restore the altar. It goes on and tells us that Asa then restored the altar of the Lord, verse 8. Last sentence of verse 8. Restored the altar of the Lord which was in front of the porch of the Lord. Gang, what is the altar a type or picture of in the Bible? What is the altar of, of Israel's worship a picture of for us? The cross. The altar of sacrifice. The bronze altar where all the blood sacrifices were, happened, occurred, is a picture of the cross. Restore the altar. Now, by the time King Asa came in to rule, the altar was in disrepair. There were problems with it. How did it happen? I'm not sure. We know it needed to be repaired. Maybe when the Egyptians came in under, under Shishak, maybe they came in and we know they didn't take the altar. They took all the gold. They left behind the bronze because who cared really about the bronze? But maybe they defaced it or they violated it or they, or they somehow vandalized it. Or worse, maybe the altar just became tarnished with, with disuse. Now look this up. You know bronze actually does tarnish, but it tarnishes very slowly. It develops this, this whitish kind of incrustation on it when it's not used. In any case, a saw comes along and he restores the altar. Clean it up. Let's get the tarnex or whatever we've got to do and let's clean the altar up and let's restore it to its original use. You want a heart revived? You want to see a church revived? Restore the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, how do we do that? Claim it. Claim the cross. Use it. When we take communion together, you know what we're saying as Christians? I claim the death of Jesus. I claim the cross as my strength. I claim His death and His sacrifice as my way into heaven, as my ability even to say I'm a child of God. It is because of the cross. Because if we leave the cross alone, if we set it aside, if we ignore it, and the best way to tarnish the altar of, Cal- of Calvary is to ignore it. Observe your own goodness. Claim your good work, your self-righteousness. But Paul said, and we sang it this morning, may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You want to boast about anything, boast in the cross. Third thing, regather the people. Regather the people. Verse 9. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon who resided with them. For many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign. See the wisdom of this man? You, You rip apart. You take down the idols. Remove them all. Restore the altar. And then regather the people. Now for you and me, what does that mean? It means place a fresh priority on the body of Christ. Regather the people. This body matters. You matter to me. I matter to you. I cannot walk in faith in Jesus Christ without you. There is no such thing as a Christian who is an island. You don't walk out your faith by yourself. You need to be part of the body. Do you, do you care about the body? 
I'm not talking about individuals within. I'm talking about the body as a whole, the church. Do, do you care? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12:14, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. God, he says, so composed the body. 1 Corinthians 12.24 Giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. You want to know what impressed me most about the funeral on Thursday? It was the fact that as I sat down and watched, it was the members of this fellowship who showed up. Who were there? People of the body to which Sean and Mary Lee are involved. Who are there? Why were they there? To enjoy a Catholic funeral? No. To honor Roy? Maybe those who knew him. There are several there who didn't know him. But they know Sean and they know Mary Lee. And when one member of the body suffers, all suffer together. It's what the body does. Go on and look at verse 11. They sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. So the fourth thing, reinstate the sacrificial offering. Remove the idols, restore the altar, regather the people, and number four, reinstate the sacrifice. That is, come back to the pure worship of Jesus Christ. You need to understand, the sacrificial system was the centerpiece of worship for the Jewish people. They didn't just stand there while an animal was being sacrificed and go, whoa, bloody, (laughs) cool. That's not what they did. While the sacrifice was taking place, the people were in worship. Hearts and minds directed to the Lord. The singing of the Levitical priests, the music which never stopped, was continual in the temple. And the people would bow down and worship God and thank Him for His covering in those sacrifices. The sacrificial system was is worship. Our sacrifice was given once for all on the altar of the cross. And that is the number one reason we worship God. Do you realize that? Jesus' death and sacrifice is the number one reason we come to the Father and we worship. Revelation chapter 5, John hears a new song of worship. And it's a song we get to sing. Revelation chapter 5 verse 9, You were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And the sacrificial offering of Jesus on the cross, in my place, that's my primary motivation for worshiping God. So reinstate the sacrificial offering. This is all steps toward cultivating revival. Hebrews 13.10, Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. Now I'm almost done. And I can look right down here and I know exactly how long I've gone. And it's a little bit longer than usual. But stick with me just for a minute. Number five. This is where it gets critical, gang. Return to the covenant. Return to the covenant. Watch what they do in verse 12. This may shock you. They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death. Whoa. Whether great or small, man or woman. They, moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. Are you a little uneasy with that? I was. Hey, great, they're making a covenant. And it's a covenant that if you don't follow this and stick to the Lord and love Him and follow Him, you die. What? Doesn't that sound kind of Islamic? I mean, you know, or 
This does not sound like the kind of thing that God would produce. It sounds kind of like Jim Jones, actually, is what it sounds like. Okay, first of all, understand, no one was forced to enter into this covenant. If you entered the covenant, if you accepted the covenant, you were saying, for life or for death, I am for the Lord. I choose to be here. But, gang, what you see here is a people returning to the seriousness of God's original covenant with them. You can just listen if you'd like to. Deuteronomy 13, verse 6 is more shocking than what you just read. Listen to what the Lord prescribes for Israel. If your brother or your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly saying, let's go serve other gods, whom neither you nor your fathers have known of the gods of the people who are around you, near you, far from you, from one end of the earth to the other end, so shall you shall not yield to him or listen to him. And your eye shall not pity him, nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. So you shall stone him to death, because he sought to seduce you from the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then all Israel will hear and be afraid, and will never again do such a wicked thing among you. What is this? God is saying if someone entices you within the body of Israel, if someone says, hey, let's worship another God, you are to kill them. Why so harsh? Because this is a life or death situation. Because God understands something that maybe we missed, that the people may not quite yet have understood, that breaking the covenant in and of itself, breaking the covenant meant certain death. Not because God would bring it, but because sin would bring it. Because without God, you have no choice. You have no opportunity. The wages of sin is death. So you either do it God's way and find salvation and life and joy and quiet and all that we've talked about, or you do the other way and there is death, certain death, waiting for you. Now think about this. What is the covenant to which you and I are called? What is the covenant to which we're called? It's very simple. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our covenant. That Jesus Christ died for us and that by faith in Him we receive a grace from God to live forever. The gospel is our covenant. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Which means this, life without Christ means death. Life outside of a saving relationship in Jesus is death. And we're not just talking physical death, we're talking eternal death. This is a serious thing. Returning to the covenant for us is returning to the gospel. And let me say this clearly. If a revival in a church or among a people, if a revival is not about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is not a revival. Because the only revival, reviving of life that comes, is through the sacrifice and gospel of Jesus. It's through what He did. Greg Gloria, I read this whole thing on Wednesday. I won't read all of it, just a, a, ver- a line from it. The great glory sent out a devotional on Tuesday and he said these words, The gospel is under attack like never before. While the church has always had its disagreements, this is a life and death debate. If we subjugate the gospel, if we push it away, if we ignore the gospel as the centerpiece of our covenant, then we are saying people are going to die. And we don't care. 
The gospel game is our covenant. And it is as serious as life and death. Do we get that? Do you realize the danger of not sharing the gospel with that person at work to whom you were called to share the gospel, but you never have because you're just not comfortable? Do you realize what you're saying to them? You're saying, hey, you can go straight to hell as far as I'm concerned. That's how serious this is. Because if a person doesn't hear the gospel and doesn't receive faith in Jesus Christ, what is the option? Eternal death. Well, that bothers me, Pastor. That's a little upsetting. I don't want to hear that. I'm sorry. You need to hear it. I need to hear it. We have got to look at a lost world, not as those who are not as good as us, but as those who are dying and who will be eternally condemned if we can't get the Word into their hearts. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the Gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How serious are we about seeing dying hearts revived? We need to return to the covenant, which is the gospel. So these are tangible steps that you and I can take. We can get involved in the cultivation of revival. We see this with the saw in Israel. We can see it in us. Removing the idols. Restoring the altar of the cross. Regathering with the people. The church. The fellowship. Reinstating the offering of, of worship. And returning to the covenant. Being purveyors, speakers, sharers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here we are at the end. The last thing. Verse 15. We see now the culmination of all of these things. What is the result? What is the result? Verse 15. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath. For they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought Him earnestly and He let them find Him. Gang, revival broke out across the land. And what does it look like? The Lord gave them rest. Rest on every side. That is a great picture of revival. It is rejoicing and it is rest. The revival of Asa is bookmarked by Shakat. Quiet. On both sides, it began quietly in the soil of faith, seated by the Word of God. It was cultivated by the tangible, actual behavioral response of the people to their God. And the culmination, the result, because saw and the people cultivated this revival, the Bible tells us the kingdom was shakat under Him. It was quiet. Speak these words aloud with me again if you really mean them. In repentance and rest, I will be saved. In quietness and trust is my strength. Lord, I'm going to pray for something I haven't prayed for before. Not this way. I am praying that you will bring revival. I am praying, Father, that in this fellowship and over our hearts and on North Whidbey Island that You will stir the seeds of revival, that You will plant the seed deep into the soil of faith in our hearts. That we as a fellowship would be purposeful in cultivating and nurturing and watering the seed that You have planted. And Father, that it will culminate in a great harvest of rejoicing and peace. Father, we pray, we ask for the privilege and the honor not to see a handful 
But Father, to see a harvest of people saved by the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we offer this prayer to you. Simple faith. In Jesus' name. Amen.